Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on patient involvement, legal barriers to be aware of, and potential pathways to overcome them from the 2021 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit. For more information about the Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to our panelists. Thank you so much for being here and thank you to our audience. I'm going to ask each of our panelists to introduce yourselves and your affiliation or the group that you're representing. And if I can start with you, Kate, please. Thank you. Uh, I'm Kate Har Sponsler. I'm Associate General Counsel at Spark Therapeutics. Great, thanks. And Candace, shall I? Hi, I'm Candace Lerman. Um, I am a patient advocate and attorney and consultant with Bluefin Group. Thank you. And Parthena. Hi, everyone. Parthena Silos, and I am a senior corporate counsel within Pfizer's Clinical Development Legal Group. Great, thanks. And Roz? I am Roz Schneider, a physician and a patient, and I'm vice president of scientific medical and patient affairs at TheraVance Biopharma. And really my focus has been on, on transforming research and healthcare with patients through human-centered design. And that's been through practice, my years at Pfizer and then, and then in consulting, and then now for the last six months at, at TheraVance. Great, thank you. And Sue. Hi, I'm Sue Gregory. I am uh, a retired uh, lawyer. Uh, after spending 26 and a half years at Merck, I retired last July. and. Uh, and um, my last work was uh, supporting oncology. Great. Thank you, everyone. And um, Kate, you were going to start with a brief overview for us of legal issues. So please go ahead and thanks so much. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm aware that our title is legal barriers to be aware of. So I thought we'd just start with that and then talk about the pathways. Um, I'm, I was pleased to discover in the course of preparing for this with my distinguished panelists that I think a lot of our goals and guardrails for legal uh, issues are very similar to the goals of engaging with patients overall. Uh, with that in mind, let me just describe kind of, in my mind, there are three general buckets of legal issues that we think about and we navigate when we engage with patients as pharmaceutical manufacturers or other companies. The first is the anti-kickback law. Some of you have sat through boring trainings on this, but this basically prohibits us from giving anything of value except for some good carve-outs to anyone, including patients, for recommending or using our products. Uh, the other bucket is the FDA or ex-US regulatory concerns that govern the content that either we convey to patients or that patients who speak on our behalf are governed by. The last are data privacy concerns. So to the extent that we're receiving information from patient groups, individual patients or patient registries, how we're being transparent about how we use that and how we will use that in the future is kind of its own set of issues. Um, I would offer that some of the goals and how best to navigate those issues, again, dovetail with the protections and how we want to behave and what we want to get out of these engagements anyways. So the first is we want to preserve the independence of the patients and the patient advocacy groups with whom we work. 
So we don't want to pay them so much that they become an arm of the company or are unduly influenced to recommend products or to be involved in a way that questions their influence, even if they might not be. A, a second goal I would suggest is to be transparent about the consulting or speaking services. So be clear in our contracts what that fair market value is for exactly what folks are doing on our behalf, rather than some sort of generic donation to involve a social media influencer to go and write good things for the next three years. You really want to carefully describe those relationships and be transparent about what every party is getting out of it. The, the third out of my four kind of general goals here is to be accurate and balanced in your communications about your products or disease state with patients. And make sure that if they're speaking on your behalf, they're doing the same. Uh, most famously, we had another Kardashian run afoul of the FDA by making claims about how wonderful her experience was with a particular product without mentioning any of the side effects. And it was, in fact, a prescription drug that had side effects. And under FDA rules, we certainly have to describe those anytime we talk about them. So she, like Kim Kardashian, was slapped on the hand by FDA and created a good sort of funny lesson for us all to remember that at the end of the day, we really need to be straightforward, balanced, and accurate in the way we talk about our products, consistent with the FDA or other regulations. Lastly, we're really trying to protect patient privacy and the integrity of patient data. So we're using data that we might get from patients in ways that they know how we're using it that they've agreed to in advance, that we're comfortable is the right thing to do for patients. And that those ways are transparent and preserve our relationship with patients and the credibility of our, everything from our research to our commercial goals. So that's kind of my idea of the buckets of legal issues and some of the ways to navigate them. And I'll turn it back to you, Marilyn, uh, for kind of the pathways. That's great. Thank you so much. And I just want to say that I've really appreciated that perspective and uh, the interactions I've had with um, our lawyers in general, because they um, are, are quick to remind me, first of all, not to assume no before I go and ask about something that actually they are there to say yes and let's figure out how, because in fact, um, as you pointed out, those uh, those guidelines are not really there to be barriers, but they are there for protections and mutual protections in a lot of ways of the patients and the company um, and to encourage that kind of transparency. And I know we had some good discussions um, ahead of the panel today about our perspectives on that. Uh, I just wanted to turn to Candace and ask you if you could um, kick off some discussion around if you've been part of or organized an engagement that you were concerned were, would be difficult and how you ended up making that happen. Sure. So I've been involved with a variety of projects, both as a patient, um, as an attorney, uh, and a board member on uh, several nonprofits. And so I'd say the first thing I'd like to talk about is as a patient, I had an opportunity to work with a large pharmaceutical company on their plain language summaries. Uh, and for patients, this has a really big importance because uh, if we participate in clinical research and clinical trials, we're, we're interested in knowing what those outcomes are, what that data looks like. Uh, how our participation influenced and furthered science, whether or not the, the trial was, let's say, a success to move on to the next phase or to move forward for FDA approval. Uh, and I had the opportunity to be a part of a global community advisory board where uh, legal came in and actually interacted with us. Um, 
as an attorney, I'm used to uh, or, you know, working with fellow lawyers, but as a patient, that doesn't always happen. So it was uh, really great to have them join in. Uh, and they also felt the same way. They don't really get the chance to deal with patients that much. So because we were working closely with this team and it was a year long project, we felt it was really important for them to participate. Uh, we had some really constructive conversations around what a plain language summary would look like uh, for patients uh, like in the EU or over in Asia versus the United States. And also like the level of language used and perhaps some of the glossaries or indexes that could be included as well so that for uh, folks struggling with some of the terminology or scientific uh, language, they could better understand what exactly was being explained to them. Uh, as a board member of a nonprofit, I've enjoyed uh, working with pharmaceutical companies to develop relationships where it's mutually beneficial and that uh, they're funding programs, really important patient education programs, uh, helping nonprofits kind of uh, scale up, especially in the rare disease space with extremely small patient populations, uh, conditions called considered ultra rare. Uh, but also kind of facilitating uh, programming and education for clinical trial enrollment uh, and, and a better understanding of what the clinical trial process would look like for some of these uh, groups, particularly with pediatric populations. Uh, obviously, you know, we have children participating, but caregivers, parents, grandparents, um, healthcare aides that are participating and will be responsible for taking care of the participants in the trial or in the children. That, that's really critical. Uh, and it's been really wonderful to see kind of legal come into these spaces um, and interact at uh, a more social level uh, instead of just what I've seen in the past, which was you're dealing with what I like to call the patient facing team. And those are folks that uh, are dealing with us or dealing with uh, organizations. And then there's legal in the background. It's like this ominous cloud. Like I, I, I hear all the time legal where great ideas go to die. And, and as an attorney, it, it's frustrating to hear that because I understand where the protections are, but as a patient and as somebody who's fortunate enough to be alive with my rare disease, I also know where we can we can change that culture and that perception. So I'm always honored when uh, legal steps in and comes to meet with us. I know sometimes it can be a little awkward because perhaps, you know, as an attorney, you're not really meeting with patients all too often. Uh, but I also want to give a shout out to a group that has been participating in this conference, uh, CISGRIP, which is a nonprofit group out of Boston, does fantastic work. Um, I'm always excited if I participate in some of their programs or if I see some of their webinars and things that they've put on, especially during the pandemic. Those groups like that are invaluable. And just coming from as a patient and an attorney, uh, that stuff is so needed. And I like to try to humanize what we do uh, in compliance for, in particular. Uh, it's an area of passion of mine. Uh, but I also know that the decisions we make and the rules we follow and the laws that we abide by do have real world consequences for people in my position. So I'm always encouraging uh, Biopharma to take that step to make sure that you do include your legal and compliance folks uh, in those patient groups and in those meetings and advisory boards. Uh, I think it's a, a really uh, beautiful thing and it just builds a, a level of trust uh, between uh, industry and patients that can't be beat. So definitely part of the toolbox is legal is your friend. <laughs> Remember that they are your ally. Um, you touched on a couple of really important points there also around transparency and around um, providing uh, resources that, that can be helpful globally. Um, I, I want to turn to you now, Roz, because in some of our discussions, you had talked about the fact that um, when you're working on these global projects, 
you can't forget the details that uh, taking one universal approach is not going to work around the world. So I, I think you had some more perspectives on that that you wanted to share if you'd like to, please. Sure, and, and I think some of the perceived challenges are magnified when you're working globally. I, I, I think one of those challenges is the, this assumption of no, that you know, each of you have already said, and I, I've been in the room and in meetings where there's a legal presence and someone else says, well, legal won't let us do that. And then you hear the lawyer chime in and, and say, wait, I'm here, nobody ever asked me this. Um, did you ask legal because I, I'm here? So, so I, I would say ask legal uh, early and often. And that's what I found to be the key to making things happen because I have asked the questions and I know I, I've tortured Parthena on some of this when I was at, at Pfizer, but um, it, it was really a, a pleasure to work as partners and still is with, with my colleagues where, you know, we step back and we say, let me understand why this could be of concern. Let me understand and, and let me share what I think the purpose of this engagement is, right? And if we can agree that that purpose makes sense for patients and for the company and within the, the um, framework of, of legal and regulatory guidance, then we can talk about what it is we think we would like to do and then together work on how we can do that and how we can do that in a compliant way wherever we're doing it. So um, for engagements that are um, including multiple countries, um, let's say an advisory board, for example, um, it, it, it is important to say, why should it be in that country, right? What, and, or if it's not in that country, but we're including colleagues who are not from the country where the, the engagement is occurring, what's the relevance to that person and the relevance to the, to the purpose to having that, that person involved? And if we start there, then it's, it's much easier to get to the, to the how. And then, of course, it, you layer on some of the other issues like translation, right? So if, the, if you're planning for the meeting to be in English, are we also going to be simultaneously translating? Or is it going to be that, that it's going to be in another language? And, and understand the burden that that places on patients that's in addition. So I've been on the, I've been the person wearing the headphones in Germany and in Japan, you know, and it's exhausting. So we have to consider that, but again, make sure that we're doing it in a way that works for the, the participants and, and for us. And then since this is talking about you know, legal issues, we have to recognize that the rules do vary from country to country and not make any assumptions there either. And early on, leave enough time to talk to internal counsel that's local if we have that, um, and then they will often engage with with external counsel. And, and I think what's been really helpful is to say, we have a high level set of principles that are consistent with what Kate laid out at, at the beginning, the high level principles that, that work for the whole company. And then we'll have specific guidance for functional groups that are doing their specific work and for the different regions or countries that are doing work that is most relevant for them, 
those guidances, though, still have to align with the overarching guidance that you've decided you've committed to as, as a whole company. So that, that really helps with that commitment to patient-centeredness, and it helps us with, as we must, uh, you know, acting in a way that's compliant wherever we're doing our work. Um, and payments that's also been brought up as, as an issue also gets complicated when you're going country to country. I, I personally believe and um, out of respect for the work that patients are doing with us and from the conversations I've, I've had with patient communities over, over the years, that the default should be that we offer um, compensation to patients who are engaging with us, and they should have the right to, to refuse that uh, where, where it's permitted, I say. Um, and then to figure out what's fair compensation, we, we had very little guidance um, years ago for patients, but we had some, some guidance and uh, let's say internal policies within companies about how to pay healthcare professionals and scientists and other experts. But uh, thanks to a lot of work that's been done in collaboration with uh, the European Patients Academy and, and, and uh, National Health Council uh, in the United States and, and the uh, We Can group, uh, European network that's put together a, a lot of work on this. Now you can go to the National Health Council website in their sponsor patient engagement tools. And, and there's actually a calculator that, that uses very specific criteria for how you can, in a consistent way um, within our own companies, think about what's the appropriate compensation based on you know, the expertise, the experience, and, and the number of hours we think this is going to take and, and the type of activity so that it isn't random and it isn't that you know on Monday you come up with one number in one group and then in the same company on Wednesday it's, it's a different number. And that, it, it's, that's where I think it invites more scrutiny. So I'll, I'll stop there. I'm rambling. <laughs> no, not at all. I think those are all really important points and also great to um, remind folks that there are resources out there now, which we didn't used to have. As you say, it, um, it, I think it was very much a, a struggle for individual companies to try and figure some of these things out. So I'm very glad that we have more guidance now and that it's more and more global guidance. Uh, as you say, I, I think it's incredibly important that we respect patients' time and contribution. Um, not not in excess, as you say, Kate, not to uh, influence, um, but definitely to uh, appropriately compensate and, and appreciate the uh, contributions that are there. So um, I, you said a lot about transparency as well, which I think is also really important. And um, it's something that I know you, Sue, in particular, have, have worked really hard around uh, with health literacy. So um, can you tell us some of the best ways that you've been able to promote health literacy and uh, where you've seen it make a difference for patients? Yeah, thanks, Marilyn. So um, several years ago, while I was still at Merck, I was approached by one of my commercial colleagues who was very passionate about um, making the communications that we shared in the promotional context with patients about our products to be more health literate and particularly to include patients with low health literacy. And um, 
so she came to me early and we sort of, and it, it sort of ties into, I think what Candace and what Kate and Roz, Roz all said about coming to legal early. And so she came to me very early. She had very big plans and we decided, you know, let's focus on not trying to boil the ocean, but let's try to make progress. We're not trying to be perfect. Let's try to make progress. And that's, that's one of her quotes, progress, not, not perfection. And so we talked about how, how we interact with patients and discuss our products is really in large part governed by the FDA patient labeling we have for those products. And so if the FDA patient labeling is itself not as particularly health literate as we might like it to be, that's where we have to start because we can't change what's in the FDA patient labeling. So we decided to do a, um, a pilot with one of our newer products coming on the market because there's some difficulties trying to change the existing labels. So we used a new product and we worked with some external experts. We were lucky enough to have some money from the commercial team to support going to folks at Emory and Northwestern to help us to really look at low health literacy. And we developed patient labeling that was much more um, patient friendly, both in terms of the words that were used, but also in terms of how it looked, using some, you know, using pictures or diagrams with white space, with bolding and bullets and things that I guess I never really thought about as a lawyer. And we shared our, our research with the FDA to try to explain to them why this might look a little bit different than something we had otherwise done. And we were able to get that patient labeling successfully approved by the FDA. And then it became the basis for all of our communications about our product. And they were more health literate. And in the sort of spirit of starting small, and but particularly because obviously Merck is a large company, starting small and trying to make in incremental change, we then were able to make that a standard for all of our new products coming out. And then working to change health literacy, as Candace mentioned, on um, inform patient-informed consent. Um, because there are legal issues with informed consent, but we also wanna make sure patients can understand it. And so I think for me, it was, we were uh, lucky enough to have somebody who, on the commercial team who was passionate and was willing to fight for health literacy. She came early and often to talk about how to do this and to work iteratively. She was open to trying to make small changes. And I think when you look at where Merck is now compared to where it was say five or six years ago, I think it's really tremendous. I mean, it probably took longer than anybody wanted it to take, but where we are now in health literacy and how we actually incorporate it into everything we do with patients now is something that I think we're, we're all very, very proud of. So I think you know the, the learnings of that are, legal does want to help. It's no fun saying no, right? It's no, it's no fun saying no when people come to talk to you. That, that's not what we're there for. But we do, you know, I think it was just sort of a very good collaboration that we had. So uh, that was just a huge success for us. And, and I think more importantly, a success for patients, particularly those of low health literacy. Fantastic. Thank you. What a great uh, example of, of what you can work together. And um, I, I agree with you that early start is, is a big plus as well. Um, I think, you know, the, the last minute scramble is, is never going to be good for anybody. Um, so I, I think I'm hearing a lot of, of good key takeaways here and, and a lot of good creativity. And uh, so Parthena, hearing all of the progress that we're starting to make, um, I just wanted to ask you if you could um, reflect for 
a, a minute or two on um, just where you think that we're heading next. What do you think that we'll be doing differently tomorrow? Because now we can become some of these, uh, overcome some of these uh, perceived barriers. And uh, that'll leave us about 15 minutes for the audience also to please go ahead and chime in. I've seen some good chatter so far and uh, some resources being posted and a uh, reminder that we also do in the, um, in the toolbox have additional resources that you can go to and, and Kate's pointing you in that direction. Kate Woda is pointing you in that direction as well. So um, Parthena, if you could give us your thoughts and then uh, for those of you in the audience, please go ahead and chime in on the live Q&A and the chat and we'll be happy to uh, continue some dialogue. Great, thank you so much, Marilyn. Yeah, first of all, I just wanted to say I absolutely agree with all of my esteemed panelists, I think someone said. Um, I do also love, you know, just obviously as a lawyer, it's actually on my sort of, you know, intro to CD legal deck at Pfizer um, for, for those potential clients that are out there in the audience. I actually have it on my slide, like ways to work with CD Legal, come early and come often. <laughs> um, and another sort of, you know, uh, quick soundbite that I like to put on that slide as well is when in doubt, reach out. Because I think that, again, the idea is to, you know, welcome the partnership and welcome thinking through these issues that are not necessarily cookie cutter um, and, you know, facts change, advice changes, and it's all, I've appreciated from the client's perspective, like they don't always understand, like, wait, why are you giving me a different answer on this, right? Versus like, what are the key things here? So in any event, I just wanted to say that I absolutely agree with that sort of um, general principle, I think from the lawyer's perspective. Um, to answer your question, Marilyn, I think there are two key themes that sort of pop out for me in terms of what we can do better moving forward, right? And the first, I think, and I've heard actually on this panel discussion today, is empathy and really thinking um, and acting in a way that puts the patient first and um, actually thinks about it from the patient's perspective, because of course, you know, we are all whatever hat we wear in our professional lives, but we are actually all patients as well, right? And we are all in many ways also caregivers. And so I think really trying to put those hats on in addition to whatever professional hat you have, right? Um, and, and as I think many said on the, on the panel today, like really trying to enable um, whatever activity or <laughs> uh, project, initiative, you know, um, uh, teams are coming to you with in a way that meets that sort of, um, you know, goal of how would you feel, right, if this was impacting your house and your family? Um, I really think that that's a key thing to sort of, you know, keep at the front of our of our minds and really with that mindset um you know i think that that will make huge progress and i love that progress not perfection i'm gonna have to add that to my <laughs> slide um 
So that's one thing. And so empathy from the patient's perspective. But what I heard also today was empathy from the lawyer's perspective. <laughs> so please, you know, um, know that we, in fact, are here to help. And, you know, um, that's that's our job. Right. And that's why some of us went into the legal profession <laughs> to help others. So um, and it's really no greater privilege than to help in the context of working at a pharma company and certainly um, you know, in these times, right? I think there's no better privilege. So definitely um, uh, think about it from that perspective. Then empathy, I'm still sticking with my empathy, Marilyn, <laughs> uh, as my theme, right? So empathy from the patient, empathy from the lawyer, but I also heard, you know, Kate mention what a great overview on the three different buckets of legal issues. So empathy from a regulator's perspective, right? And that, like, these rules and laws are there, you know, somebody once said, and this also stuck with me, you know, our SOPs and policies are not there because we want to be persnickety, right? <laughs> and like, did you dot that I and did you cross that T? They, the, the laws and rules themselves are there to protect everyone. And so I think we really need to remember that um, as well. So that's the first thing, empathy, I think, is what will help um, get us moving forward um, in the right way and sort of continuing to make progress. And the second, and that's my only other theme, <laughs> is um, equity. I think that a lot of the, um, you know, uh, health literacy, transparency, all really goes into equity and making sure that everyone um, has the same information and can understand what it is they are contributing to, you know, being very simple but purposeful, um, I think is also a great thing that will um, help us moving forward in the right direction. So um, empathy and equity, I think, are the two things for me that, you know, will continue to propel us forward. And I guess last but not least, I'll leave you with just another thing that I know Roz has probably heard me say multiple times over um, the course of our partnership when, when she was at Pfizer, was any writing can be improved. So I'm proud that at Pfizer, our patient agreements with individual patients are no more than two pages. And, you know, my, my eighth grader could probably read and understand it. And certainly even my sixth grader probably at this point, right? And so I, um, you know, I think that, that those are huge strides. And, you know, again, in the spirit of every writing can be improved, we are continuously improving upon that two pager. So I think that, again, um, I say any writing can be improved and especially my own. So <laughs> I'm happy to sort of, you know, fall on my sword when I need to uh, in that respect. So in any event, um, those are my thoughts. Fantastic words from all of you. Thank you. Um, I think those are great points and absolutely all of us can continue to improve, but great that we're making those kinds of strides. Um, Empathy, I think, in any social situation is absolutely key. Uh, if you understand that other person's perspective, you're halfway there. Uh, we do have some good questions coming in and also some good love for you legal folks. A lot of appreciation that people are sending in. 
such a great notion on empathy. How would you increase the collective sense of empathy within the organization and within the legal and compliance teams to increase integration of patient voice in our processes today? Anyone have any thoughts on that? I, I could jump in, Marilyn. I think that one of the things that I found um, really helped me feel that empathy, certainly from the patient standpoint, was as Candace pointed out, including legal in direct interactions with patients, which is not usual. Um, but anytime I've been able to listen in on a patient panel, be able to interact and ask questions um, and help my own understanding of what the patients are going through and what they understand or what they need, I think that that has helped increase all of our under, you know, ability to interact with the patients and have that empathy. So I don't know that companies often do that, um, and certainly larger companies, and, and Kate comes from a smaller company, and maybe she can, and Roz does too, can, can weigh in on that. But at the bigger companies, there's, there's less interaction with the patients. But when people have made the effort to include legal with the patients, I think that raises the empathy. And if I can just add, I, I always go back to connecting to the purpose, your purpose of your whole company, right? Each one of our companies has a mis mission statement, a purpose statement. And if you actually say that out loud with the groups when you're working and you say, well, okay, we want to create medicines that make a difference. How will we know if we're making a difference, right? We have to ask. We have to listen, and I think the foundation of empathy is believing the other's experience, right? So we don't have to have lived it. We don't even have to understand it. We have to believe it to be able to get to that point where we can, again, have that collective empathy and connect the whatever functional work we're doing every day, whether it's in the legal group or any other group in the company, connect back to that purpose. Because if we can't see how it connects to that purpose, then it's probably something we shouldn't be doing. Great points. And, and I love that idea that you don't really have to understand and agree. You just have to acknowledge the legitimacy of somebody else's point of view. That's awesome. If we talk about legal barriers within the context of clinical trials for which the costs are not covered by the individual patients, who is responsible to clarify the, those potential barriers? And most importantly, who covers the costs considering that no legal advice is granted for free? So I think we're we're trying to understand if patients feel like they need legal advice, what do they do? Is that kind of the question? We might need a, a follow up from the um, the person who was asking the question. But in general, um, if patients need some clarity, for example, around the legal document that they're reviewing, um, do you have any advice on what they should do first? In the context of clinical trials, I would think that the patient has to really go through who's giving them the informed consent. So the folks on site for the clinical trial. And I would just say if the informed consent is so difficult that they feel like they need legal advice on it, shame on us, right? It needs to have been written in a way that is understandable and the why of why everything is in there needs to be a lot clearer. 
Now, there have been recent updated guidelines that really work to ensure that, where it's a question and an answer that's much clearer and a, and a sort of synopsis up front that helps with that. Um, but I, I think you, you, patients are generally sort of forced to deal firsthand with the clinical trial site and then, of course, have contacts within the company. Candice, I feel like you're nodding emphatically. Do you have other resources to add to that? <laughs> yeah, I would say um, I've had a lot of people contact me just because they are in the process of enrolling in a trial. They kind of are confused about like, what are their rights? Um, you know, the biggest thing is informed consent is an ongoing process. And I think that, you know, if you have your MSLs at clinical trial sites, like that needs to be like the first and foremost thing that they're letting patients know. Um, and that's really, really important in pediatric trials, because I think there's a, a, a great uh, sort of cloud over parents, like, am I doing the right thing? Is this worth it? And and it depends on the disease too, and and the severity, and and you know, and unfortunately, if mortality is is kind of looming over them, what does that look like? And and what is that? You know, who do we go to for questions? Uh, but I think it, it kind of circles back to you know the literacy of of the trial process in patient communities and understanding things, and also uh, how do you present that informed consent? And I think uh, one thing that I've seen repeatedly on projects is. Giving that those documents, we know as attorneys, you know, there are things that were required by law to present. And I've told several pharma companies, you know, you have to include that stuff, but also how are we presenting it to patients? So in some cases, you know, yes, you have to sign the documents, you have the paper, you send them home with papers, perhaps you also email it to them and give them an electronic copy, but also there's nothing wrong with sitting them down and saying, we have a short video for you to explain the trial process, or we have the, uh, some slides that we would like to show you. That kind of stuff is really critical. And I think if we're not including that at this point in 2021, we're failing. Uh, and that's, that's a huge issue. But I think it's also like, we have to present things in a certain way, yes. But I also think we can provide guides and uh, subsequent material that can assist the person in understanding exactly what they're signing up for. I also think it's really critical that we train our trial staff, or if you're going to outsource to a CRO, that you ensure that the CRO and their staff that's going to be handling your patients and your trial are up to date on how to communicate with people, how to understand and assess the literacy of somebody that's participating in a trial or their caregivers. I think it's important that we don't just discount that there's also a support team behind each participant in a clinical trial uh, that's there with them or transporting them to and from appointments. Everybody needs to be involved in that process and they all need to understand something. And there's no shame in asking for clarification. I think that's a, another point that's really critical. A lot of patients feel intimidated to say to somebody like, oh, I don't really understand this or could you clarify this point? There's no stupid questions. I think that that's a, a good icebreaker when you're uh, you know, engaging in the trial process and sign up. There's no stupid questions. Uh, don't feel silly if you don't understand something. And and really, we as a, attorneys have to look back at some of this stuff and take our legal hat off and put ourselves back in like sixth grade and say, you know, if can I read this? You know, can I understand this? You know, if I don't have a JD, does it make sense? Great. And we have a few other questions in there that I'm going to ask us to review offline to make sure we give thorough answers. But we have one that'll kind of wrap us up nicely which is really, what do we see as the next frontier of patient engagement? So um, maybe it's pediatric trials, maybe it's other things, but can I do a, can, can I ask each of you to, to give a quick response on what you see as the next frontier? And uh, that'll wrap us up in our last three minutes. For us, it's been input on clinical trial design, 
creating clinical trials that speak to actual outcomes that impact quality and nature of patients' lives rather than a more abstract medical endpoint. Nice. Yeah, I completely agree with Kate. That's where I was going to go. Input on the clinical trial design and, you know, incorporating that input far enough in advance that you can have those discussions with the FDA so that they will agree with your clinical trial design. Because sometimes you end up with these trial designs because that's what the agency wants. And so you have to have the input early enough to, to work with the FDA to get them to agree to your endpoints. Great. Agree. And, and I think that's the next frontier is to have that as part of the real frontier, which is end-to-end -end patient involvement where wherever we think about involving an expert externally, whether it's a scientist, a, a physician, a nurse, whoever we're going to be involving, that we also say the experts are also patients. And if they're not there, we should have to explain why. That to me is the next frontier. Great. I'll add the next frontier, I think I'll pick up on something Sue was talking about, is really, you know, engaging regulators and making them uh, be a part of the partnership and that end-to-end, because -end. I, I, I agree with all of the above, but I think, you know, regulators are a key uh, stakeholder and we absolutely need them on board as well, right? Absolutely. And I'd say another thing is uh, we're going to be the future, we're bringing trials to the patients, especially with digital health tools and COVID. We saw, uh, you know, a, a sudden shift in clinical trials when kind of the world shut down and everything had to change. And I can definitely see uh, AI and digital health coming, um, just coming very soon. And patients may not have to travel to trial sites anymore. I think that sometimes the trial sites are going to travel to the patient. Fantastic. Thank you all so much. Great input, great discussion, great participation from the audience. Um, again, we have some other important points and questions and some other resources folks are asking about. So please do check out the toolbox and, uh, you know, take an opportunity to ask some folks questions offline as well. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Patients as Partners Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you.